0: everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at 2 at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com/slash two And you can buy merch at store.twoguys to the In this episode, We'll conclude our coverage of The Shining with Part 5, Matters of Life and Death.
1: Let's start the show. Things come to a head at the Overlook. Having received a mental message from Danny, Dick Halloran makes a treacherous journey to the hotel. Jack Torrance is seduced by the ghost of the past as the hotel begins to come to life. Wendy and Danny worry about what is happening around them. Eventually, Jack finally snaps and the lives of all four characters are in jeopardy. Jay, we've come to the end of this book, The Shining. Indeed we have. And maybe it's because of the movie looming in pop culture and in my mind heavy over this book, Mm. but I was surprised at how relatively happy this book ended. I had sort of forgotten how this actual book ends. I remember very clearly what happens in the movie, and we'll be talking about that in a future episode. But things end up relatively for the good here, despite some terrifying moments along the way.
0: Yeah. It really seemed like Wendy and Halloran were going to die,
1: but they didn't. Like really going to die. Like The way that King describes their injuries when they are both stabbed, slashed, beaten, crushed by this rogue mallet, and the injuries, you know, it sounds like they're bleeding out and there's blood everywhere, and Halloran's head smashed in and there's blood pouring out of him and his mouth is crushed. Not to mention scratched, cut, and burned. Yes, by the topiary on the way in. Like all these things are like, oh my God, there's no way. And meanwhile, like Halloran's like lifting up Wendy and carrying her out of the building and mm-hmm. Wendy's running after things. Like it it, it was very Surprising to me because I kept thinking again, knowing that the book and the movie were different, I was prepared for anything. Yeah. Right. I was prepared for Halloran to die. I was prepared for Wendy to possibly die. There was only one character that I knew for sure was probably not going to die. And that's because in future episodes, we'll be talking about a sequel to this book. And there is one character that I know survives into that book. Spoilers. Spoiler alert. For a f- almost fifty-year-old book, I, I joke a little bit because it's really not a happy ending, right? Like Danny is obviously traumatized by everything that happened. Wendy's obviously traumatized and is beaten within an inch of her life by her husband, Dick Halloran, who did his best to avoid snow his entire life. Comes back on this awful, awful journey back to the mm-hmm. to the hotel, only to get attacked by topiary animals and then smashed in the face with a a rope mallet.
0: Yeah, and as somebody who Really, just has had enough of snow for his entire the rest of his life. I definitely can say that that's probably the worst part of Halloran's experience
1: <laughs> It's just
0: the snow itself.
1: Yeah, you know, it's not a happy ending for Jack, obviously, either. Or the hotel and the owners of the of the Overlook, who that sort of gets glossed over in the epilogue. Like, what exactly happened? Like, how did they get away from the fact that an entire hotel blew up? And is Jack held responsible? I mean, he's dead, but like. Do Wendy and Danny have any sort of lawsuits against them for letting this hotel, this multi-million dollar property get blown up? Ah, but that's not important. It is a happy ending. The three of them are on a beach in Maine and living the good life.
0: Yeah. Why wouldn't you be? (laughs) Another aspect of the ending of this story was very much reminiscent of some of King's other stories. Mm. And those were written after this book, but I really saw an echo here to the end of the regulators and desperation the hotel literally gives up the ghost a manta ray shaped thing comes out of it it rises above it and and lingers in the sky for a moment and then dissipates and that is just like the strange looking horse or the strange looking cowboy on a horse that manifests in the sky briefly in those other two king books and it's like there's this ghostly presence that over time became more and more powerful and eventually seemed to gain a sentience as it like dissipates I, I i don't remember which of the characters it was but it was like they could almost hear a voice that it was screaming no mustn't 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 it shrieked and shrieked in a in a voiceless screaming panic right yep so it knew that it was dying it knew that it couldn't continue and it had an agenda that agenda was never really clear or maybe never really consistent but part of it involved bringing Danny into itself absorbing Danny's power and i think that if it had any clear agenda it was to just grow more powerful mm, yep and instead it was extinguished when the hotel
1: was destroyed right the other thing that was sort of like a happy ending in my opinion that is related to that is this this presence which has taken over Jack and Jack's body, right-, mm-hmm. I loved how Danny, as a six year old kid, sort of like takes a stand against against this thing and says, You're not my father, I don't know what you you know I don't know what you are what you are, but like when he is trapped and literally cornered in the overlook, he like stands up against this thing and basically says, I'm not afraid of you, and that confidence that bravery that Danny shows is enough to put a seed of doubt in whatever this creature's mind is like he's not he, he's unable to to use the hammer on Danny and Danny's able to stand up to him and it sort of freaks this thing out because he thinks it scared Danny to death and it's taken over Jack already and Danny's presence here is is enough to sort of scare this away and and really is sort of a precipitating event that puts enough doubt in this thing's mind that Danny's like I know something you don't know and there's this whole thing with the the boiler and then the thing tries to, to Fix it, and it can't. And so I thought that that was a nice piece of this too, and leads to this thing blowing up eventually.
0: Yeah, for a ghostly entity that had been in r- around for fifty years or or more, it seems very much reactionary rather than planful. Mm. For example, as soon as Danny says, "I remembered something," what do you think it is? <gasps> the boiler. Instead of just finishing Danny off, it's right there. He can just swing the hammer down and then go fix the boiler. It's nope, turn and run. go get the boiler. Another example is Jack's about to get into the room and finish off Wendy, and he hears the snowmobile outside with Halloran approaching. And instead of finishing the task at hand, spins on his heels and goes after Halloran. I don't want him to hit Danny. I don't want him to, (laughs) to finish Wendy off. But in terms of a an evil. Spirit creature thing that we're dealing with, it had a goal and it just kept giving up on these goals to chase the next brightest, shiniest object. Yep. And it is that that was its undoing.
1: Yeah. Cause it, like you said, it had a chance to kill Wendy and then the dick ex machina shows up on the snowmobile. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Deus ex scatman crothers. <laughs> yes, exactly. The other sort of piece of this happy ending is the revelation of who Tony is. So it's been building up since the first section of the novel that there is this person. What is he, like a teenager maybe I think he's described as? An older boy at least who is talking to Danny and seems to be the one who is guiding him to here's where you need to look for your father's play or here's what you need to know and sort of guiding him to these future events. And it turns out, Jay that Tony is actually an older Danny because Danny's middle name is Anthony. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you as shocked and stunned by this revelation as I was, Jay? Mildly so. <laughs> yeah. I honestly did not remember
0: who Tony was going to turn out to be. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah, I, I, I see what came <laughs> there. Okay. It didn't floor me. No, I was like, "Oh man, I gotta pick my jaw off up off the floor and and proceed
1: with the story now. No, it wasn't quite the twist that I was hoping it would be. There was such this build up in the first section of during one of their drunken sprees, Jack and his friend from the school have an accident. They look around afterwards and they see that they've run over a bike mm. and they look all around the side of the road like, Oh, did we hit somebody? Did we hit somebody?" and i thought that maybe that was going to be who tony was right this this boy who jack had killed and maybe that sort of the sins of the father are coming to help the son type of thing and we never find anything more out i think it just hit an empty bike it it turns out to be but this revelation that danny is tony and the doctor knew all the time right like he's like oh yeah you know why his name's tony and like we're left to wonder no why and the doctor has detailed medical records including <laughs> his middle name. patient's middle name <laughs>
0: yes I was thinking like something along the lines of Danny had an older brother who maybe died very young, mm. but his ghost lived on and therefore was a little bit older than he was, something like that. Or maybe Danny was a, it was kind of like in the dark half where he sort of <laughs> had a conjoined twin that was absorbed and something and like- Hey, spoiler alert
1: for episode 257 of, the, of, the, of our podcast where we discussed <laughs> the dark half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, if you don't want to know the details
0: of the dark half, go back ten seconds in your life. <laughs> forget. forget what I said. <laughs> sorry about that. But yeah, none of those things turned out to be the case. It was just this is somehow like I don't know, a future awareness of that Danny has of himself, like a some sort of time travel closed loop. Yeah, thing? some sort of
1: manifestation of the shine, I guess. You know, I think early on. Dick says to him like you you're, you're going to see things that aren't there and you might see future things as well and you'll just have to know what to do and I guess Tony is just the way of symbolizing that here's your future stuff. So yeah. I guess it's it, it wasn't the revelation I was hoping it would be.
0: You would think that if you could speak to your past self that you would be a bit more direct in your
1: communication. You wouldn't like point to yeah. invested <laughs> apple stock not oh look here's where your dad's play is hidden. Yeah. Or, here's the reflection of the word murder, and I know you're not old enough to read yet. You figure it out, five-year-old self. All right, well, you hinted at this a little bit earlier, that Jack ends up becoming this manifestation of whatever is in the overlook, and, and that's what's trying to attack and get Danny's powers. And along the way, this creature manifests itself as Grady the bartender, and they make reference to the manager of the hotel. And at one point, I think he says something like, oh, maybe we are wrong to go with you, Jack. Maybe we should have been working through the mother and gone through Wendy to get it, Danny. And Ooh. and I, I guess the question is, what's the deal here? Like, what this manifestation, why is it going through Jack? And was there a better way, even though the plot is a little confusing, like it wants to kill Danny, but it wants Danny's powers. How exactly is, it gonna, is that going to work? Does it just sort of suck up Danny's life force when Danny dies? That's all unclear, but like, would there have been a better way for this entity to get its way around without using Jack? Why Why use Jack? I don't know if there is a better
0: way, and maybe that's the answer. That's the simplest answer to your question is mm. Jack was the best way for the hotel to do whatever it wanted to do. But I think we can examine why the other options the hotel had might not have worked. Mm. For example, why not just go directly to Danny, possess Danny, and make him jump off the roof or something like that, right? Or right, jump into the elevator shaft. I don't know, something, right? I, I think the hotel couldn't possess Danny because Danny's innocent. Mm. He might only be innocent because he's a five-year-old boy, but he is innocent nonetheless. So he is incredibly powerful, and he is the thing that the hotel wants, but he's also an innocent child. So there isn't a, a path to his possession it's just headcanon at this point but yeah. that's that's my
1: thought that makes sense and when you were saying like why doesn't it make danny just jump off the roof or or try to die in some other way you know the other thing that comes to mind is why didn't the entity possess i don't know a thing of wasps which maybe it did mm. but i think as dick said these things can't hurt you right like these things that are the manifestations these ghosts or whatever they're just images they're not things that it can actually hurt you so i wonder if maybe those wasps were never were never going to be able to kill danny they were just going to be in a little bit of an annoyance and it had to be somebody stronger and more human than that like because again you could have had like why didn't the clock just fall on danny's head but maybe the the hotel wasn't that powerful so it had to work through something else so you've convinced me that it couldn't go through danny well how about Wendy, Wendy's right there, and and it even indicates to Jack like I could have, I should have used the mother instead.
0: Well, uh, my personal theory on that is because, like Danny, Wendy is largely innocent, mm. and unlike her husband Jack, she's also not as psychologically damaged. And I think that's a big part of what made Jack this perfect receptacle for this possession, was his psychological damage. But Wendy lacked that. She had a problematic relationship with her mother. She had a sister who died, and that had traumatized her. And she also was married to an abusive husband. But she kind of found ways to rise above all of that and strive for a better life despite the problems. So I kind of feel like those things, in some ways, even made her stronger. It kind of helped her have a healthy armor against something like. Demonic possession. And she's also just like on the spectrum of innocence versus not innocent. She's closer to Danny on that spectrum than
1: Jack. Agreed. And I also think that nothing would be quite powerful enough to make Wendy turn on her son. Like the love that she has towards Danny, I don't think could be overcome by just sort of mild possession. That's not to say that Jack doesn't love his son, but you've already seen even prior to the Overlook, Jack had this ability to hurt his son, even though he loved him.
0: Yeah. He had more than the ability. Yeah. He, he did, did. actually
1: did it. Yeah. And possibly towards his wife as well. Like, there was something already inside him that would allow him to go that far. And the hotel played on that by saying, "Like you love your son, this is the way you have to help him by punishing him. Right. So mm-hmm. it, it could draw that. All right. So I think you've convinced me on, on Danny and Wendy and You've also convinced me on why he needs to go through Jack. There's one other character here that's interesting. Why not Halloran? And there's this very, very interesting piece of the book that I didn't recall at all and doesn't come up in the movie, I don't think, where there's this moment where Halloran gets these thoughts in his head. Hey, why not kill them? You could go out with this hammer. They're, they're nothing to you. Why not just kill the boy and the, and the woman? And for a minute there, he picks up the mallet. And is like, oh, there's an idea, isn't there?
0: Yeah, that that sounds like a great way to pass the time. <laughs>
1: Maybe come out in the snow.
0: Well, I just said that how Wendy is largely undamaged. I think that Halloran is also largely undamaged. Um, he deals with a lot of stuff in his life, just like basic background, day to day, like racism. Yeah, that just being a black man in America in that time period. He also has had the shine for his entire life, and he's had to deal with the good and bad that comes with that. I think that, generally speaking, that is a reason why Halloran is not an ideal receptacle. But I think he might be a stronger one or a better one than Wendy and definitely better than Danny. I think that could speak to why, in that final moment of the book,
1: he is almost controlled by the hotel de to do what they want. And at that point, the hotel is already blown up, right? Mm -hmm. And you wonder if this entity had realized what was going to happen, if it could have manipulated Halloran earlier and worked its powers on Halloran earlier, if something could have happened. But at this point, as you mentioned earlier, this thing's very reactionary. Mm -hmm. And so now it's just sort of grasping at straws like, okay, Jack's dead. What do I've got left? Oh, I've got this guy. Maybe I could turn him, and it's it's much too late at that point.
0: I would say that's one of the scarier moments of the whole book. Was we just got through everything? Our protagonists are, th- I think they made it. Yeah, like, they're they're going to be okay. Then Halloran's looking at that rope mallet, like, yeah, yeah, I could do this. Uh-huh. I, I I I could bash their brains in, no problemo. And then he puts it down and walks back outside with the blankets, and it's like, oh.
1: Wow, you had me going there, King. Yeah, especially at that point since so much had changed. You know, the topiary garden as opposed to the the labyrinth in the movie, the hotel blowing up drastically, neither Halloran or Wendy being killed at this point. I was like, wait, is there going to be like, is Halloran going to kill Wendy and then Danny's going to do something to Halloran or something else has happened to Halloran? Like I had no idea what was going to happen. And that really caught me off guard that scene. And part of the reason it caught me off guard, Jay, and one of the things I want to talk about is the beginning part of part five and much of what is happening with Dick. Because we spend, you know, sections three and four are all focused on the hotel, right? It's just, it's just the Torrance family. Mm-hmm. When we get to part five, like every other chapter is Dick's journey back to the, the hotel yep it's him planning getting out of Florida. It's him on the airplane. It's him driving up the highway. It's him getting to the hotel. at the topiary doing it, and all that at the beginning part is this grand amount of foreshadowing of Dick's death. He knows he should write a will. he's thinking about the fact that he's an older man now that that his life's changing and like he doesn't have anyone left with him anymore and all these things that are just like building on him, and he's constantly smelling oranges which made me think of the godfather because in the god <laughs> in the godfather whenever there's oranges death is about to follow right so like mm-hmm. all these things are th- making me think yeah dick's dead dick's dead dick's dead i know the i know the movie so i'm i'm expecting dick to die and he has this great way of putting this he says you could go any time dying was a part of living you had to keep tuning into that if you expected to be a whole person and then they do the will and everything later on Danny, and I alluded to this earlier, when he sort of stands up to the entity, he says to the thing that is Jack, the only reason the hotel needs to use you is that you aren't as dead as the others, but when it's done with you, you won't be anything at all. You don't scare me. And this idea that it has to go through Jack because Jack's alive Mm -hmm. and not dead. And later on, we find out that what Jack really wanted... Was to stay alive forever. Like, that's the whole idea behind the Overlook, right? There's these ghosts that are living forever. And part of what Jack says is that he doesn't want to die, that he wants to live forever. And I think, this is my theory, that part of what this story is about is that life is not worth living without knowing about death. That's sort of what sets us apart from animals, right? That we know that we are going to die at some point. And Danny, this story is about him coming out of childhood and becoming an adult and part of that is realizing that you're going to die one day and that your parents are going to die one day and that you're just sort of one piece of this and this is when Danny sees my father is going to die i'm going to die but along the way i'm going to become an adult here mm-hmm. and i think that that's what a lot of this section it seemed at least seems to me was building up to this and i think that that's the tension here
0: yeah you could kind of divide the the four characters into good and bad characters, like the good characters like Danny and Halloran recognize that death is a part of life. And the acceptance of death is what makes life precious. Whereas the bad characters like Jack and the ghosts want to live forever. They want a shortcut. They want just a free ticket to eternity. And they're willing to do anything to get that, including, you know, haunt a hotel and murder little boys and all the other stuff that they do because they get to just go on existing, but they never seem satisfied with that
1: existence. Well, it's not a great existence, right? Because no. you're stuck in one place, you're not doing anything, you're doing the same things over and over again. And, and maybe that's what Jack wants, right? He wants to just be able to walk into a bar at any time and get drunk mm. and live forever, just constantly doing that. And that's what would have happened if the Overlook would have made him part of the Overlook. He would just eternally be there drinking, just like Grady's eternally there as the bartender, mm. these other people are constantly partying at this this party that is. It doesn't seem like a fun party, does it? No, it's it's a scary party with weird things happening and and people being degraded, and it's not a wor- a life worth living. And I think that that is sort of the terror or horror of being undead of life eternal is that. It's not capturing the greatest moments of your life. It's capturing these horrible, awful moments, being killed, killing people in these weird parties. And I think that that, that's the horror of the Overlook, ultimately, is that these ghosts are going to live forever. Whereas, like you said, Halloran is happy with his life. He feels he's led a good life. Mm -hmm. And that's why he continues to go and rescue Danny and Wendy, who he's met for what? Half an hour? An hour? is that that's all they had together at the beginning of the story but he did have the
0: the connection to danny via the shining that let them feel like like they had a bond that friends for 30 years wouldn't even come close to
1: right and so with all that he is willing to sacrifice his life because he would say like i've done something i've helped this Mm -hmm. young boy and so knowing that i've led a good life and that's worth living and that hits a little different when you're a a 60-year-old man, like, okay, I've led a good life. It's much different for Danny, who's a six-year-old boy, who's coming to that realization. I mean, that's the hard part of becoming an adult. And I think, and I hope this isn't too much foreshadowing, I wonder what effect that would have on an older Danny to know, like, oh my God, like I've got this power and I, and I almost died and, and I had this terrifying event. How is that going to impact my life? Stay tuned for Dr. Sleep on upcoming episodes. Sean, is it time? to talk about some
0: Dark Tower thinnies?
1: I believe so. You can start us off, Jay.
0: All right, I will. So the first one I wanted to mention was that there's a moment when Halloran is thinking back on the history of Room 217, and he thinks that several of the guests had seen or heard things too. In the three years he had been there, the presidential suite had been booked 19 times.
1: Whoa, 19 times. 19 times.
0: The other thing I wanted to call out here is that in the steps from, I guess, the second floor down to the lobby, there were 19 of those steps. Exactly. And we know this because Wendy counts them and then thinks about how there are 19 steps when she is dragging her <laughs> almost dead body up them so that she can escape her attacking husband. So she's. Counting each step one at a time, but she knew that there were exactly 19
1: of them. That's what she needs to get away, those 19 steps. Yeah, I noticed that one too. My dark tower thinny is sort of a bigger macro thinny, and that is that the overlook itself seems to be a thinny. There's this description, King says, he says, It wasn't a perception of sight or sound, although it was very near to those things. Separated from those senses by the filmiest of perceptual curtains – it was as if another overlook now lay scant inches beyond this one separated from the real world but gradually coming into balance with it Ooh. i know a lot of times when we're talking about actual thinnies we're talking about these like i don't know like black hole spaces that weird tentacles are coming out of like in uh uh-huh. like in wizard and glass But I think that there's this other piece of the thinnies where it's worlds that are very similar, but not quite the same. So like in the wastelands where there's this Topeka that's similar to a Topeka that we might know of elsewhere, but it's just slightly different, right? It's got the Takura Mm -hmm. spirit and the different sodas. And I sort of got this idea that the Overlook was like that, that there's these two versions of the Overlook that they exist in this Odd space where sometimes you can see into the past or the future, and they're just sort of overlapping each other here.
0: I totally buy into that definition and and analysis of a thinny. That that's basically the whole idea of the levels of the tower, right? Like, mm, yep, you go through a thinny to another level, and there's a, it could be a, a thing that's so close to where you just left that the only difference is like the color of the dollar bills or something, yeah, right, or You cross into another place, and there is tentacle monster, (laughs) and everything in between. It's very from the subtle to the gargantuan. There are these layers, and they effectively occupy the
1: same place. It's just a different like dimension or something. All right, Jay. There's a couple of yucking it up moments here. (laughs) So I think you and I both had and highlighted this one, which is probably the most obvious yucking it up, and that is, Lloyd's face seemed to be running, changing, becoming something pestilent, the white skin becoming a hepatitic yellow, cracking, red sores erupting on the skin, bleeding, foul-smelling liquid, droplets of blood sprang out on Lloyd's forehead like sweat, and somewhere, a silver chime was striking the quarter hour.
0: Somehow the silver chime makes it all <laughs> click together and worse. Yeah.
1: That, that nice, beautiful moment after all that gross, disgusting stuff.
0: Yeah. It's like the, your, your lunch is ready in the microwave. You know? <laughs> Ding! <laughs> Lloyd's face is done melting. Ding! Uh, that was definitely on my list. The other thing I wanted to mention in yucking it up was this line. It laid its Jack Torrance hands on the valve, unmindful of the burning smell which arose or the searing of the flesh as the red hot wheel sank in as if into a mud
1: rut. (laughs) I could totally visualize his hand sort of melting into this thing. Uh, Yeah. It's, yeah, not great. No. There's this moment where he like releases the valve and you're like, oh, maybe it's not going to blow up. And then, nope, it blows up anyways.
0: And it described him as like doing a little happy dance and waving his hands, and they are on fire. Like, they're flames coming off of his now melted mud rut hand skin, and ugh.
1: All right, well, we want to thank our patrons for supporting the show. They get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. And Jay, I think we've got a couple of new patrons. We do. We want to thank Roland. Roland, see, I did
0: it. You did do it. Every time I read this, I I read it as Roland. We want to thank Ronald S., who joined at the Gunslinger level, and Michael Y., who joined at the Apprentice level.
1: Thank you, Ronald and Michael. Yeah, we appreciate it, and we're hoping you're enjoying our exclusive Patreon content. We've had a lot of good bonus episodes, and we've got a bunch more planned. All right, Jay, there's quite a lot of fun stuff here.
0: Fantastic. I love fun stuff.
1: I'll start us off. I just really laughed when
0: I read this. Uh, this is when Halloran is on the plane and they're having some turbulence and folks all around them are starting to yak. (laughs) And there's a line, a man three rows in front of Halloran had whoopsed into his national observer and had grinned apologetically at the stewardess who came to help him. That's all right. She comforted him. That's how I feel about the Reader's Digest.
1: (laughs) That's some great bedside manner there. The turbulence is only one of the many barriers in Halloran's way as he's trying to rescue Danny and Wendy. But he's helped as well. He encounters a couple of people who have the shine, which is a nice little touch. And he says, like, you know, sometimes I only meet four or five people a year who have the shine. And meanwhile there's all these people along the way who are giving him little bits of advice and 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 helping him. And one of those is Howard Cottrell. I wondered if King had like Monday Night Football on while he was writing this part of of it. Because as soon as I saw it, I'm like, I'm Howard Cotrell. We're here today in Dallas Cowboys <laughs> Stadium to watch the Dallas Cowboys against the Philadelphia Eagles. Just so close to Howard Cosell. Yep. And I realized that I'm saying this in like, I don't know, 90% of our listeners are probably like, who the hell is Howard Cosell?
0: Yes. The Venn diagram of people who know Howard Cosell and listen to podcasts, I think those circles don't really touch What we way you think.
1: Well, especially when Howard Cosell's been dead for, what, 45 years, probably?
0: Maybe the ever slightest amount of overlap. Yes. You and I know who Howard Cosell is, and we make a podcast.
1: Yes. Uh, But we're also old men. Yes. What else have you got? I I really
0: love the imagery in this line. Somewhere on the west side, a shutter latch had broken, and the shutter banged back and forth with a steady, flat cracking sound, like a shooting gallery with only one customer. (laughs) So good. That is good.
1: When Jack is starting to go crazy, he's looking back on his father's life and trying to make connections between, well, what what was it that actually caused my father to start beating my mother? I'm sure he must have had a good reason. and He starts coming up with these things like, oh, she must have given him a look or rolled her eyes at something or not had dinner ready, ready, and that justified it all. And he says, for Jack's father, it must have been more like the fate of McTeague, the dentist at the end of Frank Norris's great novel. And McTeague is this book about this hulking dentist in the 19th century. And you have to remember, dentists in the 19th century were more like butchers almost, right? Like They're just yanking out teeth and stuff. The plot of the book ends with McTeague in a fight with this guy, and they're out in the desert, and they're fighting over money. And McTeague ends up killing this guy, and you think he's going to get away. and But then you you realize with the 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 guy who he killed's last breath, he handcuffed himself to McTeague. And so what ends up happening is McTeague is handcuffed to a corpse in the middle of the desert. And you realize there's no way out, right? Like McTeague's gonna stuck and meet his fate here in the desert. It's a nice reference. King's showing off the fact that he read McTeague. I just wanted to point this out because when I read McTeague, I got a book from the library about it. And there were people who were writing in the margins, a little notes to themselves like, "Oh, man versus nature or man versus man or very obvious like connections it was obviously somebody who's like, "Okay, I'm reading this." When they got to the end, you know, this big punchline, you you turn the page and it turns out McTeague is handcuffed to this corpse and his death is foretold here. Somebody had written the same person who had wrote all these other like literary thoughts Aw fuck in the margins of the book. <laughs> and this book, which is supposed to be all serious, when I turned the page and saw that, I laughed my ass off because it was just the funniest thing. Anyhow, all that to say, it's fun stuff for me because I've read McTeague and I, I read that little marginalia. Aw fuck when McTeague got stuck to this corpse.
0: I'm pretty sure you could figure out a way to get that handcuff off the dead guy's arm before you died. Even if you had to like munch through his wrist flesh bite his thumb off or something, you know? It's like, "Ah, I'm pretty sure I could
1: get it done. You could get it done, but you'd still be stuck hundreds of miles away in the middle of nowhere in the desert with no way out and the hot sun being on you. But you'd have one less corpse slowing you down. Yeah. What else do you have for fun stuff, Jay? There is a moment when
0: uh, Jack, the possessed Jack, is pursuing Danny and he yells, Danny, Danny, come here a minute, will you? Which reminded me of The Simpsons when they describe how the- uh, Unsophisticates tend to use (laughs) lowbrow phrases like come here a minute and why you little. Study shows their crumbling economy is due to their lazy attitude and shoddy work. How the hell did they find that out? Scientists say they're also less attractive physically. And while we speak in a well-educated manner, they tend to use lowbrow expressions like oh yeah and come here a minute. Oh yeah, they think they're better than us, huh? Bart, come here a minute. You come here a minute. Oh
1: yeah. As always, the Simpsons did it first. Simpsons did it. Okay. It took me a second to get this one, Jay. When again, Halloran's journey to the Overlook, he gets cut off by somebody on the road and the man delivered one of the two finger gestures that all Americans above the age of 10 recognized. I'm like, what is it? And it was not the peace sign. I'm like, oh, okay. I I know what the one was, but like I didn't know what the second one was, but ah, the peace sign. That's another one that Jay, would you say that everybody above the age of 10 in America right now knows two finger gestures? and one of them is the peace sign, and the other one is obviously the middle finger. I'm not sure if the peace sign is as prevalent as it was.
0: Well, at the time that this book takes place, the peace sign was all over.
1: Agreed. I'm saying now, do you think that this is a true statement, that all Americans above the age of 10 know two finger gestures?
0: No, they probably just know one. Yeah. I wanted to conclude my contributions to Fun Stuff with the question that I have asked in the past in other books about, uh, or, or in other Stephen King books. Why doesn't anyone get properly dressed in this story? <laughs> the entire final act of this story has a demonic, possessed man with a rogue mallet chasing his family around a haunted hotel. And Wendy Torrance is wearing a bathrobe and slippers. Put on actual clothes, at least. At least she had some time where she was locked in her quarters with all of her wardrobe available to her. She could have put on shoes, jeans, a shirt. I'm not saying dress for the outside. Just, Just don't be in a robe. This isn't Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Get out of the bathrobe and your pajamas and put on some real clothes. You might be able to run down the hallway faster. You might not trip. Maybe you could fend off your psychotic husband. More effectively. If you again, this is not the Rambo gearing up for action montage, but just just don't be in a bathrobe for crying out loud.
1: Makes sense. I agree. One last fun stuff. It seems like all of mine are about Halloran's journey to the hotel. <laughs> I, I don't know if King meant it to be as humorous as it was, but it was. But this is less humorous and more just sort of a weird coincidence. He gets pulled over by a cop and the cop's ready for any excuses, Halloran says. He says, I know. It's a funeral in Cleveland, your father. It's a wedding in Seattle. And Jay, I live in Cleveland. You live in Seattle. What's the chances of that? Wow. that That's awesome. Yeah. It's like King foreshadowed our lives in 40 years in the future.
0: Uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to make that into 19, just, just to <laughs> satisfy my obsessive compulsive disorder.
1: Well, Cleveland has nine letters in it. Seattle does not have 10. Oh, never mind. Oh, well. <laughs> All right. We're at the end of the book. We'll do some final thoughts, Jay. So this is a well-received King book, uh, at least now it is. Goodreads gave it four and a half stars with almost 1.3 million ratings and 30,000 reviews on that site. Wow. I think that that's statistically relevant four and a half stars out of five library things readers are a little bit less 4.12 stars, but still good. This was King's third book and the reviews weren't quite as great. So we have book lists saying King achieves another haunting tale of the macabre, which although its contrivances are easily seen grabs attention and follows a successful formula for tingling the spine through to a gory climax. That's not too bad. I mean, contrivances are easily seen. I would maybe argue Jay that King's not trying to hide anything. No.
0: He telegraphs it with the chapter titles.
1: Yeah, and <laughs> amongst those, yeah, as well as being part of a gothic tradition. So I, I don't think he's necessarily trying to do something overly original, but as Bookless says, it is it is a successful formula.
0: I think Mr. Bookless missed the point.
1: Yeah. How about Kirkus, a and again, remember, this is King's third book, and the first two were sort of surprises, especially Carrie. By the time Kirkus writes, they write a pre-sold, prefab blockbuster. The Shining sold to Warner Brothers and tapped as a Literary Guild full selection, NAL paperback, etc. Enough activity to demand an afterlife to consummate it all. Oh, the reader needs no supersight to glimpse where the story's going, as King's formula builds to a hotel reeling with horrors. During Poe-esque New Year's Eve revelry and confetti out of nowhere, back prickling indeed despite the reader's unwillingness at being mercifully manipulated. Again, Kirkus is along the same lines as bookless formulaic, contrivance, but again. I don't know. King quotes Poe. Yeah. (laughs) He quotes Mask of the Red Death many times in this book. And then the New York Times, and this might be the first full review of a King book contemporaneously. In the New York Times, so this is from 1977, and it was a a longish review. Judging from his latest novel, The Shining, King is a writer of fairly engaging and preposterous claptrap.
0: (laughs) Preposterous, I told you.
1: Still, like a fast, short-order cook during the breakfast rush, he serves up the scary stuff with unremitting dexterity. Mr. King serves up these horrors at a brisk, unflagging pace and he undeniably keeps things moving. Some of the horrors, however, are embedded in his writing style. And then this guy goes on to pull out like three or four lines that he did not like and thought were lame. The evil is slapdash, unfocused, and eventually preposterous. Mr. King is a natural, but he lacks control. He simply rears back and lets fly with a fireball, and a lot of wild pitches result. There's some mixed metaphors there. Mm. That's a pity because his sheer rookie's energy is engaging. And in the relationship of Jack and Wendy, there is a core of psychological truth that might have been crafted into a subtle psychological thriller. You know, I gotta
0: take some uh umbrage to borrow a word from our earlier conversation off Mike. Ooh. This reviewer is like not a great writer. <laughs> he used serves up twice. He used preposterous twice. And he mixed his metaphor so ham fistedly that I don't even know what his point is. So I'm not saying he needs to be like Shakespeare, but if your job is being a book critic for the New York Times, then uh, maybe you should uh, be able to stand up to your own criticism.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, Jay, it's time for our thoughts. Let's not end on a New York Times bad review. Let's end with our thoughts. And I got to tell you, Jay. It's been quite some time, at least 35 years since I've read this book, and even after I read it originally, I don't remember it standing out as like, oh, this is one of the best King books ever, and part of that, as we've discussed many times already, is the movie has such a overwhelming mm-hmm. force on this, but having reread this and analyzing it and talking about it with you, I'm going to give it four and a half topiary animals. I think that this is, if not- top five King book, in my opinion, it's definitely in the top 10. Uh, you and I spent some time sort of looking at his bibliography and I'm like, yeah, this is better than that. This is better than that. This is better than that. Um, there's only a handful of books of by King that I would put above this.
0: Which of the topiary animals are you chopping in half?
1: I will not give it the entire rabbit. I will just give it the uh, rabbit's ears and head. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs>
0: I will uh, keep things less interesting and say that I'm also going to give it 4.5, Topiary Animals. Not that interesting because we're both giving it the same rating. I really, really like this book. Like you, I haven't read it in a long, long time. I read it once in the 90s and hadn't really thought about it that carefully or returned to the pages at all since then. And like you said, Kubrick's movie just looms large and in the zeitgeist, it almost blots it out it it what this book is, yeah, this was like a breath of fresh air. it just you know when you said this was King's third book, I will say this again, like I, I've said this every time we've covered one of his seminal works early in his career. He wrote carrie then he wrote Salem's lot, then he wrote this, then he wrote the stand. this guy wrote those four incredibly
1: good books. Boom! 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 Right out of the gate, and he could have stopped. And he could have stopped at the age of thirty and been set.
0: So the fact that this was his third published work is just incredible, and it, I think it stands the test of time. It's fantastic work, and uh, four point five topiary animals from me, and I'll like give it. I'll refrain uh, half of one of the lions. Got it.
1: The, the front half that, that messed with hollering. <laughs> All right. Time for some other worlds than these. You want to go first? Yeah. I'll keep this brief, Jay. We're recording this in the hiatus period between the first half of the last season of Better Call Saul. The second half of Better Call Saul is probably going to start around the time that this gets published. That first half was hilarious, devastating emotional, tense. It's just been fantastic. I'm not quite sure I'm ready for the second half, but uh, I I know we've mentioned Better Call Saul on here before. It's just fantastic. I'm going to leave it at that because I know it's going to be a hard watch, I'm guessing, the last few episodes, but I'm so confident that it's going to be fantastic that I'm sort of previewing the fact that I'm not going to be disappointed in how it ends.
0: That show from start to... Almost finished, has been some of the best TV ever. Yeah. Just full stop. Lately, I have been watching the new Star Trek series, Strange New Worlds. Surprise, surprise. I have enjoyed it thus far. I did not like Star Trek Picard. I did not like Star Trek Picard Season 2 even more. I hate-watched <laughs> both of those seasons. And Star Trek Discovery is just kind of overall let down. I will continue watching it. Really like Lower Decks and um, really liking Strange New Worlds. If I were to try to convince anybody to check it out, I would say it feels like Lost Episodes from the original series. Mm. The bridge is made to look like Kirk's Enterprise and even the silly little buttons that look like gemstones and stuff like that. <laughs> the sound effects, it's pretty great. And it's episodic. They go on these little adventures and they know where they fit into the the scope and the timeline. That's a fun show. I like it.
1: Yeah, um, I have it on my list of things to watch. I think that, that that might be what pulled me back into the Star Trek world because I've been a long lost wanderer away from it. So despite you talking about all these shows and I'm like, Oh yeah, I should watch that, I should watch that and I never really get into it, except for Picard, which I've very much stayed away from. Uh, I think this might be what pulls me back in, so I'm looking forward to watching it.
0: Yeah, and uh, Anson
1: Mount's hair is just amazing. All right, then. He plays uh, Captain Pike. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at to the com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, here it is. We're going to cover the 1980 movie, The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick. We're not hiding it behind a bonus episode, Jay. All our patrons, all our listeners, all the time. It's what they want. They want The Shining. We're going to give it to them.
0: That sounds fantastic.
1: I can't wait. Be sure to watch it and then hear what we think about it. And we're looking forward to that. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. All right. Shall we clap? (coughs) We should just... Instead of clapping cough together at the same time.
0: Yes. That's synchronized right. coughs. We are so ill. <laughs> <laughs>
1: the real yucking it up. <laughs> just just gonna cough up a lung. <laughs>